Well, with joy, I would ask you to turn when you're with me to Romans chapter 8 again. Again, I just looked a little while ago, and this is the 14th sermon in Romans chapter 8, and we have a few more to go yet. But that's for good reason. This is really one of the watershed passages in the entire Bible. Very few have offered as much insight and comfort as the verses in this chapter, and specifically the verse before us. This is a verse with which almost every Christian is somewhat familiar, and a time when, uh, at the times when difficulties come, it seems to be a magnet that draws us back to its truth. Romans 8, 28. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There are two questions that are at the core of your soul that are so critically important. How you answer these two questions defines who you are and defines what you're about more than any two questions that could be asked. The first question is the one we often ask and know of very well. The second might surprise you. The first is this. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? That's the foundation for understanding the gospel. It's the foundation for believing that the Bible is the testimony of God. Do you believe in God? If God does not exist, then why are we here and what are we doing? So I hope, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that that's an easy question to answer. You have circled that a long time ago. Do you believe in God? That ultimately drives us to the gospel, which contains the substance of our faith and provides the key that opens heaven. The key is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in God? But there's a second question that might be more troubling. It's the question that you actually intuitively ask all the time whether or not you recognize it or not. It's not do you believe in God, it's do you believe God? Romans 8:28 provides that critical test which gives us truth that we have to ask ourselves if we believe it's true or not. The verse begins with an affirmation of something that Paul knows, something that he believes, and we know, he says. He goes on, he knows that God is at work. He knows also that God is at work in all things. All things in his life, all things in the world. And then he extends that truth specifically to believers in the last part of the verse, to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. In other words, this passage is especially written for believers. Now, just a little aside, if I can. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're, we're glad you're here. You came to the right church with the right people on the right Sunday to find out how you could find peace for your soul and peace with God because Jesus gave his life and sacrificed himself in death as a substitute to pay for the sins of those who believe and then rose from the grave on the third day to give hope that he indeed has the power over life and death and he has the power, that resurrection power that can change a life. You could believe that today. You could be a part of this, this group, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But if you don't believe 
the gospel. If you have not embraced Christ as Savior, this verse has no application for you. And if I can say it as graciously as possible, you have no hope for when difficulty comes. The only thing you can hope for is a cessation of bad circumstances, and that will all cease at death for all of us. This verse is speaking to a special group of people, those who have believed the gospel. So, if that's you, let's join in together. And if that's not, what a great day to join with us as those who know that God is doing something special for us, even in the middle of our trials. For a believer, though, we're, we're stacked up against this verse and asked, do we really believe it? Do we really believe God who says that all things work together for our good? Do we believe that? Let's press that just a little bit. Can you truly say and believe what David says in Psalm 46.1? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When trouble comes, do you reach out for God as the help? Not necessarily out of the difficult circumstance, but help in the difficult circumstance. Or what Asaph concluded in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion. He's my gift forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, as for me, the nearness of my God is my good because I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. We've entitled this uh, study that we're doing through Romans 8, 28, It Is Well With My Soul. It's an echo, obviously, of what we just sung, Horatio Spafford's hymn. And the goal of this series is the most basic practical application and takeaway, I think, from the Bible. Can we say to everything and to anything, it's okay, my soul is at peace. It is well with my soul, even if it's not well with my body or my circumstances or my relationships, it's well with my soul. This passage tells us how it can be well with our soul. In fact, I think it's the only way that our souls can be at peace. We began by looking at our um, uh, passage and breaking it down into seven insights for living under God's providence. Seven insights for living under God's providence. Now, this is God's providence, which we keep talking about, which is a part of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his rule over everything. Sovereign has to do with being a king. He is the ruler. He's the king over everything. He is the sovereign one of the universe. But God's sovereignty often feels way far away, way out there. God's providence is when God's sovereignty gets in your life. That every single thing in our world can be interpreted as a part of God's ordering of our existence. Every bad visit to the doctor where we get news that's not welcome. Every time we sit in traffic. Every time we enjoy a blessing. Every time we hold a a sweet, precious new life who's just come into the world. All of that, all of that is by order of God's providential sovereignty that he's brought everything into our 
lives. As we broke this down, we were looking at providence. This verse is really about providence. We broke it down into seven insights. Let's look at the first one uh, just by way of review. The context of providence. The context of providence. It starts with the word and there in verse 28. And, literally day in the Greek. Moreover, now, noting a transition to a new particular. Now, the context here moves back. We've already looked at the fact that the context specifically says and, which is associated with verses 26 and 27. We come to a place in difficulty where we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. And God says the Spirit helps our weakness by actually praying for us. God prays for us. The third person of the Trinity, the Spirit himself, makes intercession with groanings too deep for words. He prays for us. But look specifically at the end of verse 27. He prays according to God's will. He prays about things that ought to and should happen in our lives to produce the maximum amount of godliness, the maximum amount of enjoyment with God. And he prays those according to God's will. Verse 26 says, we do not know how to pray. Verse 28 says, and we know something about God. Why do we know that? Because the Spirit of God is praying for us. That's why we know that. He's praying according to God's will. But look in the context. Reach back up to verse 18 for a moment. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The context here, Paul says, is suffering. It's difficulty. It's unwanted circumstances. It's issues with people we would rather not face. It's looking at our world and what it brings us that's unpleasant. That's the context. That's all in that word and. What we know is in the context of difficulty, tribulation, suffering. What chapter 5 calls philipsis. It's the Greek word for pressure that God extracts godliness out of us because of the pressure he exerts on us. That's all in the context, the and. We also looked secondly, number two, at the celebrance of providence. I've already alluded to this a minute ago. This, this passage is for believers in Christ only. We are the only ones on the planet who have confidence that all things will work together for our good. We are the only people who can know that because those are the only people to whom God has promised that. We and we, it's the little word we. That's not anybody in the world, that's believers. And if you're not a believer, what a great passage for you to meet and study with us. You could become a believer. You could become someone who is a part of the we. We are the ones, verse 31, whom God is for. Obviously, true believers, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, as we find out in the following verses in 29 and 30. Are we a part of the we? The we are the people who know what God is doing and that it is good and that it is purposeful. Just for a moment, hold your finger there and turn back a few pages to Romans 5. We studied this in, in some detail. I'm going to show you something else about the we. We have peace with God in chapter 5 verse 1. That's because we've been justified by faith. That's a summary of the first four chapters. We exult, we rejoice in the hope of glory of God in verse 2 and verse 3. And not only this, we 
also exult in our tribulations knowing something. We know something. Which leads us not only from the celebrance, but our confidence. Number three. Just reviewing still. Our confidence. What Paul says here in chapter 5 is connected to 828. We know something. We have the ability to see above the clouds that there's sunlight and sunshine below where below there's, there's a storm. We can see that God is doing something behind the curtain in our life. As, as one theologian says, providence is God's invisible hand inside circumstances that works in, on, and around us. We know something. We know that God is doing something on us, for us, through us. He's about something. James 3, 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We have insight. We know what God is doing. We noted also in our last study that we have such a sweet advantage. Abraham, in Genesis 22, did not know that God was testing him, but he was faithful. Job in Job 1 did not know that Satan and the father had had a a conversation to let Satan after Job. He didn't know that, but he was faithful. Do we have any reason not to be faithful? We know what he's doing. And we know from this passage, as we'll see in a moment, that it's good and it's for our good. We have confidence. That's why we say Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for, what's the next word? My soul. Now that's all review in those first three insights into God's providence, which brings us now to our fourth And we're only going to get as far as the fourth and the fifth today. Number four, the cause of providence. The cause of providence. This is where every Christian who rightly understands God's providence and God's sovereignty swallows hard and smiles. This is the most difficult of truth to understand and grasp and the most precious and comforting once it has been grasped. The cause of God of providence Two words, God causes. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at some translations don't have the term God causes. It's based on a different group of manuscripts. Uh, the, the New American Standard translates as God causes. I think that's the better way to understand this passage. And yet, if you look at the way every translation um, concludes, it, you're, you're still left with the same conclusion, that God is the one who is the cause. He's the one who is acting for and on the believer. So here we meet the sovereign providence of God head on. God causes. Now I'm going to date myself just a bit. And some of you will be dated with me. In 1981, I was given a book that a person who was well-meaning encouraged me to read. It was a book that began to, to get widespread reading. It was a, a New York Times bestseller. What makes this book so interesting and made it very curiously interesting to me is um, what it's about. It was described as, in reviews, as touching, heartwarming, wise, compassionate. The book was written by a rabbi named Harold Kushner. 
Remember what it was called? When bad things happen to good people. The book was a rational attempt at bringing sense to the subject of theodicy. We've talked about this before, but it's very important in in understanding this because if God causes all things for the believer, if God is causing things, we better understand how bad things fit into his causation. Let's back up and talk about this for a moment. The classic theodicy problem, not theology, theodicy. A theodicy is a a defense of God in the light of the presence of evil. And remember, there are three propositions philosophically. Uh, Spinoza is the one who who really canonized this. But uh, uh, philosophers beyond uh, him continue to go use these three little rules and three little uh, logical steps. Spinoza said there are three logical conclusions, three statements, three truths that people hold. You can only have two of them. You can't have all three. Now, here's three. God is good. God is good, morally good, has goodness in his um, being and essence and demonstrates goodness toward his planet. God is good. Secondly, God is all-powerful. And third... Evil exists. So here's how the argument goes. You can have two of those, but you can't have all three, philosophically. So they'll say, God is good, and evil exists because he's not all-powerful. He can't do anything about the evil that's on this world. Or you can say, evil exists, and God is all-powerful because God is not good. Or you could do what the Christian scientists have concluded and say, well, God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil does not exist. I often want to talk to those friends and say, so can I just step on your toe as hard as I can and tell me what that was? What do you mean evil doesn't exist? Do you understand the logic? They say, well, if God is good and God is all power, then evil wouldn't exist. Or God is not good and he's all powerful. That's why evil exists. Or God is good and he can't do everything. So that's, he's not all powerful. Therefore, evil exists. What, how, how do we reconcile this? Kushner takes the view that God is good and evil exists. But poor God is not powerful enough to control the evil things in this world. So he's a little bit of a victim of uh, the devil and bad things just as you and I are. Kushner asks this, quote, from when bad things happen to good people. Can you accept the idea that some things happen for no reason? That there is a randomness in the universe? Then he goes on to talk about things like Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, and other natural disasters, which insurance companies call, quote, acts of God. He says, quote, I consider that, calling a disaster an act of God, I consider that a case of using God's name in vain. I don't believe that an earthquake that kills thousands of innocent victims without reason is an act of God. It is an act of nature. Nature is morally blind, without values. It churns along, following its own laws and not caring who or what gets in its way. End quote. This reasoning really reflects a postmodern mindset about theodicy. There's randomness. There's luck. 
There's chance. There's fate. People have sovereignty over events and people have sovereignty over people and nature has sovereignty over us all. But think about this for a minute. To say that randomness or luck or chance or fate have some kind of control over anything is really the worst of all idols. The most subtle of all heresies and blasphemies. You know why? They don't exist. Randomness doesn't exist. Luck doesn't exist. Chance and fate fate don't exist. They're not a thing. And something that's not a thing is nothing. So what do we do with this? Well, I believe that this verse teaches us that evil and tragedy and suffering exist. We just saw back in verse 18. Sufferings of this present time aren't to be compared with the great day when we'll see Jesus face to face. Suffering and evil does exist. God is infinite in goodness, kindness. And yes, he is almighty in sovereignty over everything. But there's a fourth proposition that Spinoza and Kushner don't suggest. And that's God is all wise. That he's doing things we don't always understand. So that when an earthquake wipes out thousands of people, and as tragic and horrific as that is, when planes fly into buildings and people die, as tragic and as horrific as that is, when tsunamis wipe out entire coastline and earthquakes swallow people and diseases spread and malaria kills, and we have to back up and say, Nothing happened to any of those people that wasn't going to happen eventually because the wages of sin is death. Everyone will die because of our sin. It's just a matter of how and just a matter of when. So yes, God is in control of everything and he will take someone's, everyone's life either by a natural cataclysmic event or by organ failure at 100 years old. But it's all the same reason. The wages of sin is what? It's death. The question becomes, is God really the great causation with a capital C? Listen to these passages. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In earth and heaven and the seas and all the deeps. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. 1 Chronicles 29, 12. He's called the ruler of all things. 1 Timothy 6, 15. He's the blessed and only ruler. He is such a sovereign ruler that not even a bird can die without his direct involvement, Luke 12 says. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he uh, was judged by the Lord, he, he uh, roamed about as an animal. He repents and he says in Daniel 4 verse 17, 
The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and he sits over the lowliest of men. In Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent. God brings crooked or bent events into the life of everyone and the life of an unbeliever to show them the utter uselessness of trying to find significance and meaning on this planet. In the life of a believer is to pry our grip off of this world to think that we're putting pressure on this place to be heaven when it never will be to look forward to a great day in eternity when all things will be made right. Remember, God's truth is not dependent on our experience, our feelings. Just because we don't feel like God is in control does not mean that he has left the throne. I think... I agree with Jerry Bridges who says this. I think that it's more difficult to trust God than to obey him. Obedience is an act. It's a decision in the moment. Trust is an attitude that keeps you going, that helps you interpret your world. Bridges says, Obeying God is worked out in the well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in an area that has no boundaries. He's right. How can we say that difficulty are from God, that he is the cause of these things? That's a question that's riddled the church for centuries, but I think we can get a firm handle on it by by remembering that we don't get what we deserve. If we got what we deserve, none of us would be here. All of us would be in hell. Praise God, he does not give us what we deserve. Your next heartbeat is a demonstration of God's loving, gracious patience. But for a child of God who understands Romans 8, 28, it changes everything. Now, this is a passage that we've looked at many times before. I want us to look at again. Turn back to Lamentations chapter 3. The book of Lamentations chapter 3. Remember, Lamentations is uh, Jeremiah after 40 years of preaching. There's nobody responding. Um, He had prophesied. The Babylonians had warned that they were going to come to Jerusalem and take over and defeat the armies of God. They were actually going to pillage the temple to show that Baal was greater than Yahweh, to show that their God, the, 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 the God of the sun, was actually greater than the God of the Hebrews. And that's exactly what happened. On the surface, Nebuchadnezzar comes up over the Fertile Crescent, drops from the north into Jerusalem, takes over Jerusalem with hardly a fight. He takes the best of the best. All the young princes, he took the brains of the culture, their future, and 
piped them all the way back to Babylon to be used in Babylon for his service, among whom was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I wish we knew their Hebrew names more than we knew them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jeremiah is watching the city burn, and he goes up on probably the Mount of Olives, looks across. It's a very clear shot, only a few hundred yards. can see the, the city being devastated and ruined, the temple being torn down. All the instruments in the Holy of Holy that were used to worship God were carted off by donkeys. So he writes five poems to process this. He's working out his theology. The first two and a half poems climb into one section. The last half, half of the middle poem and the last two move from that. And it's three questions that are asked in the middle of Lamentations chapter 3 verses 37 to 38. Now we find a little bit more about what it means that God causes. Jeremiah asks three questions that are not questions. They are statements. Every husband understands what it means to be asked a question that's not a question, it's a statement. Honey, are you going to wear that shirt with those pants? Is not a question. That is a command to go back upstairs and change. When mom says to, to your son, are you going to take out the trash? That's not a question. That's a command. Well, in a simple way, he uses the interrogative, the questions here, to give us three statements we need to understand about God's causation. Lamentations 3.37. He says, who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass. Unless the Lord has commanded it. The Babylonians had spoken. They had warned. They had said, we're going to come. They'd given advance warning, years of warning. Four decades of warning. We're coming. We're going to defeat you. They spoke. And then it happened. Who does it look like was in sovereign control and causing that? It looks like the Babylonians were. It looks like Nebuchadnezzar was. But Jeremiah says, who is it who speaks and it comes to pass? Ha, unless the Lord has commanded it. Now what you don't see at first glance is that Jeremiah had said, if you don't repent, Judah... This is going to happen as the judgment of God. God used the Babylonians as a carpenter will use a hammer, a screwdriver, a saw, a sander. They were tools for God. Who can speak and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Teaching us God is sovereign over people. He asks a second question that's more of a statement in verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and, your translation may say, ill, evil, uh, calamity, go forth? These are catastrophes, natural catastrophes. What is he saying there? God is sovereign over circumstances. Has anything on this planet ever happened after which God said, uh oh, or whoops? Never, never one time. He's never been surprised by anything. Why? Swallow hard. Because God causes all things to work together for good. And then he asks a third question, which really puts us in our place. Verse 39. 
Why should any living mortal or any man offer up complaint in view of his sins? He's sovereign over people. He's sovereign over circumstances. And this is, he's serious about our response. Do we really have anything to complain about? Now, we find lots to complain about. Complaining is a deep spiritual sin. And I have become an expert at it. Complaining is so easy. We complain about the weather. I mean, wait till we get in the, at the end of July in Kansas City and hear people talking about how, how, how bad the weather is because it's hot. And then wait till the end of January and hear the same people say how bad it is because it's cold. We complain about traffic. We complain about our cars. We complain about our cats. We, that's a good reason to complain. We complain about anything and everything. We are such complainers because we're looking at the world with ourselves as the measure and saying... Everything ought to work out because I'm the person for whom it all is to be good. That's our intuition. That's our default. And God's going to tell us in a minute, it will, but it's not how you define it necessarily. Are we complainers in God's providence? Let me ask you a question. R.C. Sproul asks it so well. We've said, do you believe God? Let's ask another question. Have your seatbelt on? Do you believe that there is even one rogue, rebellious molecule or atom in God's universe over which God says, I don't have any control over that? Be careful. Do, do you really believe? We, we act like we believe that sometimes. God is sovereign over people, sovereign over circumstances, serious about a response. So we can slip into number five. If God is the cause, if God is the sovereign uh, uh, ruler over providence. Hey, before I go on, let me just say, he's not the causation of sin. He doesn't cause any sin or anyone to sin. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. God is not the author of sin, but he uses sin to his own glory. How does he do that? He forgives us. He forgives our sin for his glory. We would never know what a gracious, compassionate, loving, merciful God he is had there not been sin in the world. We'll save that for next time. Number five, the confluence of providence. This probably is my favorite part. And we'll only start on this and we'll, we'll finish this up a little bit more next week. The confluence of God's providence. You know what a confluence is? If you see two creeks that are coming together, two rivers coming together, that's called a confluence. It's where two things come together. The two rivers become one river. It says God causes all things to, this is important, work together. All right, let's go to Greek class for a moment, okay? There's a Greek word you have to understand. You already know it better than you think. The Greek word is sunerge. Think about it, sunerge, synerge, from which we get the word synergy. Two things that work together. It's the confluence of, of two things. All things work together. They come together. It means to collaborate All things work together because of God's causation for good. 
Andrew Murray's definition of providence is worth repeating. He says, that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in his universe accomplish the purpose he has in mind. And for the believer, this is, this is such good news. All of his workings are for our good. But here's the, another part of swelling heart, and it's the word all things. All things. No qualification, no footnote, no side note. All things. God's plan in the life of a believer for our good includes comprehensively, swallow hard, everything, all things. Now let's ask the negative for a second. Is, can anything happen in the life of a believer where we, should, we could back up and say, well, God wasn't involved in that. He must have been in Afghanistan this morning or he didn't see that, that the, the milk went bad. Well, is there anything that God says whoops or uh-oh to? Paul does not say that all things happen to us, that all things that happen to us appear to be good things. My parents have both died. That didn't feel like a good thing. That wasn't easy to interpret as a good thing. I was in Africa last week and our basement flooded. I was trying to find the good thing in there. Paul is informing us that all of these Supposed bad things happen to us in a way that works together for our good. So we can ultimately say, indeed, it is a good thing that bad things happen. Do you, let me ask you again. Do you believe God? That it is a good thing when bad things happen. Matt, Matthew 10, 30 says, even the hairs on our head are numbered. His providence is comprehensive. It's inexhaustible. And if you look down the page, we'll, we'll get here in a few weeks. If God is for us, who or what can be against us. So what does all things include? It includes spiritual things. It includes emotional things. It includes present things. It includes per, per, future things. It includes past things. It includes trivial things. It includes epic events. We'll get here in just a few weeks in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. Everything, not some things, everything. Now, how can we look at stumping our toe in the middle of the night or having an accident or having a miscarriage, losing a loved one, discovering that we have a terminal disease? How in the world can we look at those as good things? That's a good question. God didn't tell Abraham the answer. And he didn't tell Job the answer. But he's told us. 
even later on in the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, before I encountered bad things, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Now we find something. All these interpreted bad things that happen are given to us by God so that we'll learn how to trust and obey him better. It even gets more specific in verse 71 of Psalm 119. The writer says, It, listen, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I suffered, that I experienced bad things. Then he says, so that I might learn your statutes. Deuteronomy 8, 15. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good for you in the end. Do you hear that? All these bad things are to humble us and to test us so that he will and can do good for us in the end. Let me ask you again. Not do you believe in God, do you believe God? Do you believe that our bad things happen so that he can test us and humble us and make us better used for him and good in the end? Listen to the words of Thomas Boston, a Puritan. This is so encouraging. He says, whoever would walk with God must be due observers of the word and providence of God for by these in a special manner he manifests himself to his people. You hear what he's saying? Yes, we understand God's word, but we look for God. God is doing something everywhere all around us. In the one we see that he, what he says, his word. In providence we see what he does. Why can we say that? Because he causes all things to work together for good. These are the two books that every student of holiness ought to be much conversant in. They are both written with one hand and they should be carefully read by those who would have not only the name of religion but the thing. You were authentic. They should be studied together if we would profit either for, by either for being taken together. They will give light one to the other. As it is our duty to read the word, so also is our duty to observe the work of God. So, when life happens, are we reading God's word to know his heart and his regulations? And are we looking at providence, looking at circumstances and finding that God is in charge? Believing that God is using them. Are we looking for the work of God even and especially in difficulties? It is good to lose our grip on this world, isn't it? It is good to remember that these are not our glorified bodies. It is good to resolve issues with others because it reminds us of the gospel. It is good to know how, to know that there is an appointed time for everything in God's plan. Are we observing in Boston's word? Are we observing? These are the ways of God. 
We interpret God's word, we respond to God's providence. Can we say with the psalmist, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes? Because our perspective is like Joseph when he faced his brothers and they were saying, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. And he says in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant this for evil against me. But God meant this for, say it, good. Do you believe God? Here's the secret. You not only have to believe God, but trust that you do not see all that God's doing when he does what he does. We don't see the whole thing. But we know God's doing things that we don't see or understand. And we might, we might not understand it until heaven. But is our trust in God secure enough to believe that? I love sports. Most of you who know me know that. I, it often happens when I, when I go to lunch with someone or I go to dinner and you're, you go into a restaurant and you see off in the corner there's a sports game that's usually on. It could be a football game. It could be a baseball game or a basketball game. During the meal, you look up at the monitor. You see what's happening. There are good plays. There are bad plays. That your team is ahead. Your team is behind. But you don't see the whole game. And you leave before knowing how the game ends. Let me stretch that illustration just a bit. We know how God's game ends. It doesn't matter who it looks like that's ahead or behind. If you're getting traction or you're slipping, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For a believer... There really is anything bad when we understand that God's in control. So how can any living mortal offer up complaint in view of his sin? We don't rejoice in sin. We repent from it. But we don't despair when circumstances and people come against us. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Thank you for giving me a few extra minutes. I still didn't finish what I intended, but we have next week. Uh, our prayer room is going to be open. We have a very quick turnaround before our Sunday school hour. So if you would like to talk to someone, please make your way up. Uh, the Hymans will be over here to my right. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. If, if you don't know the, the Savior, what a, don't leave this building without knowing Christ. Because all things don't work together for your good until you know him. Lord, dismiss us with fresh thoughts of this truth and these truths. Hard as they are, make them sweet to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.